Amen. Good morning. Welcome to MacF Church. So, as Eric said, my name is Jonathan Demers, and I'm not on the pastoral team. Eric and Leon do a terrific job of leading our church in that regard. Uh, and occasionally, they, uh, for some reason, give somebody like me the chance to come up here and talk with you guys and talk about the Word. So, I'm honored to be up here. Uh, I, my expectation is that the Lord is the one speaking, not me. Um, and so, I invite you guys to be a part of that process as I learn and as we all learn. Um, just a couple of things and reminders. Uh, the way we do service at church at Mac is a little bit different. So as I'm going through the sermon, if there are things that you would like to ask questions about, things that pertain to what I'm discussing, um, please feel free to ask that question. Just raise your hand, wave it if I don't see you, uh, and I will happily answer that question as best as I can. Um, and even afterwards, too, feel free to come down. I'll hang out down here. If you thought it was off on something or you have maybe a question that's better for just the two of us to talk about, love to talk to you about it. Um, and then also there are Bibles that are in the back. Uh, if you need an extra copy of Bibles, uh, Pastor Eric has got some right now, and he's going to be handing them out. I'm going to have a lot of passages up on the screen, but I also think it's really important that you guys have a copy of the Word in front of you so that you can be following along too. Um, so today we're going to be continuing in Acts, Acts 27 today. Uh, Pastor Leon led us in the beginning of that chapter and really emphasized a great deal on the sovereignty of God, which is going to be a theme in this passage as well as it is throughout the whole book of Acts. Um, and a lot is happening in this passage. It's a pretty famous one, uh, one where Paul is actually shipwrecked. Uh, there, spoiler alert, I just gave you away the ending of the story. Um, but we're going to look at this passage focusing in three specific areas uh, of what's happening. So at the beginning, we're going to look at the circumstances of what's happened. We're going to read different parts of the passage and just pull out a key observation from each one. And after we've done that, we're going to look at a major contrast that's happening in the story where we see very different responses from the people that are involved. And once we've done that, we're going to look at a challenge that's being laid out before us by this passage to us as the people of God in terms of how we can be responding to Paul's example and what God is doing through Paul. So let me pray for us, for God to be preparing our hearts, and we can get started. Father, uh, even as I'm thinking about the passage, or the, the song that we sang this morning, to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. I know that one of the major themes that's in this passage, Lord, is fear and how fear can just paralyze and cripple us. And I pray that through your word today, you would challenge and embolden us to not be paralyzed by fear, but to instead embrace faith, faith that you've given us, Lord, a gift, faith that can give us the strength to see all kinds of suffering, persecution, and hardship, even something like a shipwreck, Lord, and to be able to rejoice. Um, Help us to be those kind of people, Lord, who have such a powerful testimony that the world can't help but notice and say, wow, there's a difference here. Uh, Help us to be learners. Help allow the Holy Spirit to speak through me. Um, Help help me not to get in the way of the truth that you're trying to share. Um, Be with us this whole morning. Amen. All right, so let's begin by focusing on the circumstances here. Uh, We are going to begin starting at uh, chapter 27, verse 13. And Alvin is going to be reading that first part of the passage to us. Alvin, you can go ahead. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchored and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon the tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it, were driven along. 
running under the lee of a small island called Kedah, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, then featuring that they would run again aground on ciders, they lowered the gear, and thus they had driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest laid on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Uh, I want to go ahead and um, point out a couple of things that have happened. James, you can go to the next slide. Even leading up to this part of Paul's journey, we've got to remember that he's been on several journeys up to this point as a missionary. Um, and he has not exactly had an easy path to this point, even though he's in captivity right now. We know that he began his first journey out in Antioch, where he was chased out of town by some of the high-leading men and women of the city. We know that from chapter 13. From there, he went to Iconium, where Jews that were living there stirred up Gentiles against him and even plotted to stone and kill him. Paul left Iconium, went to Lystra, where the Jews from Iconium followed him, stirred up another riot, dragged out Paul, beat and stoned him nearly to death. They believed he was dead. That's how badly he had been stoned. From there, uh, after a pretty tough journey, Paul returns back to Jerusalem and prepares for another journey. But before he leaves, his close companion, his best friend Barnabas, uh, they have a, a pretty substantial conflict, and they are not able to reconcile, and Paul has to separate from Barnabas. At that point, Paul launches into his next journey, where he goes to Philippi with another man named Silas. Once they arrive there, they cast a demon out of a young lady, and for that, they're seized, flogged, and imprisoned. After Philippi, they go to Thessalonica, uh, where, once again, riots follow them, and uh, Jason, a colleague of Paul, is assaulted on behalf of Paul, and Paul is forced to sneak out of the city. Once they leave Thessalonica, they head to Berea, where the Thessalonican men follow them and stir up another riot. Uh, Paul finally gets a break from the riots when he goes to Athens, but instead there he's ridiculed, and he's called a babbler and an idiot, and only a few people, after this remarkable speech, even come to know the Lord. Uh, From there, he heads to Corinth, where the Jews unite and actually charge Paul legally in a court of law. Uh, So they're trying to seek other means of slowing him down. From Corinth, Paul goes to Ephesus, and he deals with obstinate crowds that refuse to listen to him and also begin to show signs of riot. From there, he finally reaches Greece, where upon his return trip back to Jerusalem, they plot an attempt to assassinate him, and he's only able to get away at the last moment through another means of travel. And then when he finally returns to Jerusalem, his home city, and is participating in a purity ritual in the temple... Paul is nearly beaten to death for simply preaching the gospel and is dragged away by Roman guards, which is ultimately what has led him to being in captivity in the passage we're in today. So, uh, Berean's here. Berean's on a mission trip in Detroit. Anybody else want to go on a mission trip after that? I mean, look at what Paul has suffered through. Every single time he goes to a city, he is met with intense opposition, and not just the kind that... Uh, sort of the opposition that most of us, I would dare to say, experience, uh, where we're picked on or ridiculed. Most of the opposition that he's facing is violent and threatening and dangerous. And yet Paul continues to go on 
and on. And I wonder, at what point do you think Paul would have said, maybe uh, in one of the previous towns, like at Philippi, Paul might have thrown in the towel and said, eh, God's probably trying to tell me I shouldn't keep doing this. And sometimes I think we can think that way too. We can look at suffering or hardship and use that as a way to understand or interpret uh, whether or not we're doing the right thing. But that's not a Christian way of thinking about suffering. And Paul understood that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the book, The Cost of Discipleship, I think put this really well. He said that to endure hardship of the cross is not tragedy. In fact, it is the suffering, that suffering that you suffer it because of the hardship of the cross, which is the fruit of an exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. And so we know that when we encounter suffering, like the suffering Paul's about to experience in this passage, that is actually a mark of what it means to follow Jesus. We should expect it. We know that because Jesus himself experienced it. And if we're following in his footsteps, we will too. And so now as we continue, we see um, the sea as kind of the next major observation from this passage, stepping out of suffering and going to the sea. Uh, James, the, the clicker is not working. There we go. So this is the passage that Alvin just read. Uh, and we see that the, the boat is caught in a pretty substantial storm, one that's likely to threaten the lives of the entire crew. Um, now, when we're talking about this, this passage that Paul went on, this was not an everyday trip. This was not a normal coasting trip like he's done up to this point. This was an open sea travel. There we go. Approximately, the full trip was going to be around 950 miles, which, if I'm standing here, that's almost what it would take to get to Oklahoma City. Okay, this is a long trip. There's no cruise control. There's no gas stops. There's no snacks along the way. There's treacherous open sea, unpredictable weather, and dangerous uh, dangerous characteristics the whole way through. The other thing I think that can kind of confuse our understanding of, of what's going on in this passage isn't just the distance, though. It's the way that people thought about the sea. When we think about the sea, it's really not that scary. We go on cruises. We take paddle boats out. There are people kayaking in the Detroit River probably today. The sea has more or less been conquered by what we understand it to be in our technology. But at this point in history, that just wasn't the case. The sea was viewed in many ways like we think of outer space travel today, like you see in movies like Interstellar or Gravity, where it's just unpredictable and mesmerizing. It's, it's beautiful but extremely destructive. And ultimately, it's something that we don't seem to have control over. It's almost like it's its own power. It's almost personified. And that's the way that ancient cultures thought about the sea because so much of it was beyond their control and there was simply no way to know or understand whether an open sea trip like this would lead to success. And the Hebrews also thought the same way. We see in Psalm 93 that when the psalmist talks about the Hebrew people emerging out of the Red Sea, that the language that's used to describe the Red Sea is personifying language. This, this monster, this being that is uh, attacking the Hebrew people but is ultimately defeated by God. And in Daniel 7, when he sees a prophecy of, of world empires emerging to oppose the people of God, they're emerging out of the sea. Again, reinforcing this idea that the sea is a source of evil and unpredictability and, and danger. N.T. Wright, a brilliant scholar in New Testament theology and in the book of Acts, explains it this way. He says that the one true God, sure, made the seas just as he had made everything else. But for the Hebrew people, the sea was still seen as a dark force, a power in its own right, from which other dark powers emerged. And that is what Paul is traveling in the storm that he's caught up in. And so from there, we're going to step into the next observation, which is going to be some of the similarities that are occurring in this passage. And Elisha is going to read the next section. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, 
Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all of all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Thanks, Alicia. So what we see in this part of the section is something that you guys might recognize before. Again, kind of from the first volume of this whole book. One of the things that Eric has done a great job of emphasizing is that the book of Luke and the book of Acts are two volumes in one set. And so whenever you see language that's happening in Acts that's also happening in Luke, the author is trying to do something to pull your attention there. That's something that we've talked about before in this series. And one of the things you might observe as, in terms of a similarity is that the story is similar in some sense to when Jesus calms the storm in Luke 8, which is a pretty familiar story and well-known. And I think that that's true, but I think there are a couple of other uh, similarities that uh, are a little bit harder to see, but I think also present. And in Luke 11 and also in Luke 17, Jonah is referenced in several times. And I think when we look at this story and what Elisha read, we see a lot of similarities to the story of Jonah, right? In both stories, Jonah and Paul are being sent on a mission. In both stories, they're being sent to an imperial center. Uh, In both stories, they go on a boat, though Jonah out of disobedience and Paul out of obedience. In both stories, the storm is caught up. A storm catches up the boat and threatens the life of all involved. Uh, And in both stories, uh, basically, uh, death is going to occur. At least it appears that way. The one key difference, though, and what Luke is trying to do, I think, is show that Paul is not Jonah. Because Paul, in the middle of all of that storm, instead of uh, striking more fear into the crew like Jonah did by declaring that God had brought the storm on out of his own disobedience, Paul, because he is obedient, has faith and the strength to know that God will take care of them. And God will provide the means to survive. And that shows, in a really cool way, how Paul's fulfillment of his calling uh, by God is a greater testimony than that of Jonah's, who failed to have the faith to follow through in his calling. I think there's one other similarity, too. And that's in Luke 22 to 24, where we see, actually, Jesus crucified. And that similarity may not be as obvious, right? There's no boats, there's no storm involved with Jesus. But I think there's a pretty deep connection, Jesus, too, went on a journey to Jerusalem. Jesus, too, was apprehended by the Jews before uh, he was able to fulfill all the things that he was there to do. Jesus was turned over to the Romans after being apprehended by the Jews. Jesus was interrogated by a Roman governor and brought before Herod. And Jesus was ultimately punished and held in captivity before he died on the cross. Pretty similar to Paul. 
Paul, too, traveled to Jerusalem. Paul, too, was apprehended by the Jews. Paul, too, was overturned to the Romans, interrogated by multiple governors, held in captivity. And I think what Luke, again, here is showing is the participation in the life of Christ. And that if you want to follow Jesus, you better expect to deal with the same kind of obstacles and hardships that Jesus experienced when he was here on this earth. And that the parallels there are not accidental. And that if you and me want to follow in Jesus' footsteps as well, we can expect to see the same things. Again, going to N.T. Wright, I think he says this very well uh, when describing what that means to really participate in the life of Christ. Wright says that there are many Christians who have been taught that once you have faith, that everything ought to flow smoothly from there. The book of Acts replies that if you have not yet considered what it means to take up the cross, and if the gospel of Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah, means anything at all, it means that those who carry the cross will have it branded into their souls. That the storms of life do not mean our journey is futile. They actually mean, they merely mean, that Jesus is claiming the world his own, and the powers of the world will do their best to resist. And so when we are in the middle of that kind of suffering, like Paul is in right now, we can be encouraged to know that that is expected, that that is actually a sign of following in the footsteps of Jesus, and that as Jesus suffered, we too will experience those hardships, and we don't have to be afraid. So the next observation I want to look at uh, is in the next section of the chapter 27, and Milan is going to read that uh, right now. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were, in all, 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. You guys see what happened there? In the middle of this incredible storm, 14 days that they've been without food, unending rain, the threat of death, here's Paul, once again, taking charge, leading, and not just leading with empty encouragement, but pointing to the faithfulness of God, reminding the crew who likely don't even worship God that God will be faithful, and then having the audacity to finally take food after two weeks of eating almost nothing, and with rain pouring down on him and the bread probably getting soggy in his hands, leads this boat in prayer of thanks and gratefulness to God. Just picture that. I mean, that's par- partly why I put this picture on here. You, you've got a, a picture of Paul here up against the mast, probably just trying to steady himself. The crew overwhelmed by water, just trying to stay afloat. And here's Paul. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you for this food. Thank you for what we have. Thank you for our life. That's hard to do. You can't really fake that. Right? The thing about Christianity that gets people is that when you're in a situation like that and you can stand there and be joyful, there's got to be something different about you. And think about all those hardships that Paul went through all through his journey. Think about what that did for his character, what it, what it meant to him to have the strength that God built his strength over chapters and chapters and acts, years and years of ministry, to know that despite all of this, I'm being faithful to God and I can trust him. Paul talks about this in the book of Philippians, chapter 4. He explains why he and Christians at all are able to do this. 
He says in four, uh, chapter 4, verses 11 and 13, Not that I, Paul, am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is the key that Paul has learned through all of these trials when everything else is stripped away from him, when he has nothing left, that what he has, what remains within his grasp, the one who strengthens him is Christ. That is the key. And we as Christians in a society that is constantly changing, in a society that uses fear to to lead us to do things that we don't want to do and leads culture to do things that we don't want to do, a consumeristic society, a society that constantly is using stuff, food, drink, clothes to lead you through fear. We as Christians can say enough of that. We know where our strength comes from. We know where our stability comes from. It doesn't come from those things. We're not affected by the circumstances of our life. No, Christ is enough for me. I've learned to be joyful in contentment. I've learned to be joyful in abundance and in need. Because of Christ, not because of that stuff. And that's our calling as Christians, and Paul's fulfilling it even here. And then one last observation I want to pull from this text is the actual shipwreck itself. And Ms. Carolyn Davis is going to read the remainder of the passage to us. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land. But they noticed a bay with a beach on it, which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach, but striking a reef. They ran the vessel around. The boat stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Thank you, Ms. Carolyn. So I am not a sailor. Anybody in here a sailor? Anybody have a boat? Familiar with that? Okay. So I had to uh, do some learning and some studying here to understand exactly what was happening uh, in the midst of this. And I doubt most uh, contemporary sailors have to do this. But when boats like this were caught in a storm, uh, what they would do is they would drop anchor uh, to avoid being run into the ground or run into rocks and pray that that anchor would hold out long enough that the storm would pass and they'd be able to continue on. But in a major storm like this, what would happen is the anchor would start to, would remain, but the boat would begin to pull. And it would threaten to even open up a hole in the boat, which would cause more damage. And so right as the anchor was at its very edge, and the boat was at its very edge of using the anchor, the anchor would be cut, the boat would drift, and another anchor would be dropped. And the sailors and the crew would just hold out, hoping that the storm would pass. And archaeologists have found, actually, multiple anchors in a row, three, four, five anchors, from situations like this, where the boat has just continued to drift closer and closer and closer to the shore. Now, what happens, though, is even if the ship is crashed at that point and it runs aground, the difference between running aground here and running into the rocks from that distance 
and being pushed into the rocks from way over here is tremendous. And it can mean saving the lives of the entire crew. And Paul knows this. Paul's been in multiple shipwrecks. He says so in 2 Corinthians 11 that he's actually been in three different shipwrecks prior to this one. Again, speaking to the fact that the sea is so treacherous at this time. Um, and so this is, this is what everybody's thinking. They're saying, man, I, I hope this anchor lasts. I hope the storm goes. I hope this anchor lasts. I hope the storm goes. And it doesn't because they're in there for two weeks. So finally, the ship does run aground. And notice what the Romans are going to do. The Roman soldiers are deciding that they're going to kill all of the prisoners that are on board. And maybe you already understand why that is. But think back to when uh, Paul was in the Philippian jail. And God caused an earthquake and opened all the doors. And the prisoners had the opportunity to run free. What was the jailer going to do when that happened? Does anybody remember? That's right. He was going to kill himself because he knew that if I let even one of these prisoners go, I'll die. I'll be the one that will be put to death. That was the culture of the Roman guard at that time. That uh, essentially Romans knew either kill the prisoners or be killed. You want to go to the next slide, James? N.T. Wright explains that well. He says, remember, Roman soldiers, these were Roman soldiers. Killing people is what they did. Cold blood, hot blood, any temperature of blood you care to name. Because if they didn't, and if the prisoners got away, it wasn't just points in their driver's license. It was their turn to die. And so the Romans are doing what they've always done. Except one of them. There's one Roman here that does something different. Did you catch that at the end of the passage? The centurion. The centurion commanded them to do something different. And this isn't just some generic centurion guy. He is actually named Julius, earlier in the passage that Pastor Leon taught on. A gentleman who's shown kindness to Paul. You can go to the next slide. Paul's testimony earned the friendship and the respect of this man, Julius, who likely was not a believer. But over the course of this journey, Julius is accompanying Paul all the way through. And now Julius is in a situation where he has essentially been brainwashed as a Roman centurion to order his men to kill the prisoners, kill them all. But the ministry and the testimony of Paul, in my opinion, has so gotten past that, has so affected Julius that he's willing to risk his own life and the life of all of his men to let these prisoners swim to an island and possibly escape. That's not a very normal, average person thing to do. The only reason you do something like that is because you either love Jesus or you know somebody who does. And Julius has had the privilege of being on a boat, swept into the sea with Paul, and seeing his testimony, and I would argue he's been deeply affected by that testimony. So that's what we're seeing. Those are some of the key observations from this passage. And I want to now take a step into the next section of the sermon and talk about kind of the major contrast that's going on. Specifically, the contrast between the faith that's exhibited by Paul in this passage and the fear that is exhibited by many on the boat. And talk about the difference between those two in Scripture and how we as Christians can embrace faith at the cost of losing our fear. And before we even do that, I want to talk about the idea of of being ruled by faith versus being ruled by fear. Because it's not, faith and fear are not the sorts of things that we just sort of choose to jump into. They usually have a a dominative effect. Um, Ruling, even as a word, is kind of hard to understand. And it uh, it takes some study and even some real thinking to know the difference between rule and lead because of our society and where we are as Americans. We don't really deal with ruling a whole lot. Right? When you lead somebody, you've either earned that authority or the person has voluntarily submitted themselves under you. 
And if rebellion were to occur at any point, the consequences would be proportional to the rebellion, but they wouldn't be drastic. You wouldn't lose your life, right? Like if a doctor is working in a hospital, the nurses that work under him are not pulled out and burned at the stake for not bringing the proper tool. At least, I don't know, maybe that does happen, Nate. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But, right, this, in, in our society, people are led, and the consequences aren't that severe. But when we talk about being ruled by someone or something, it's a totally different experience. When you're ruled, you're in a, under the dominating and uncompromising claim of another person, right? And if you try to break that rule, if you try to rebel, the consequences are going to be drastic. They're going to be existential. They're going to affect your whole life. So this kind of claim, this idea of being ruled, is really what's going on when we're talking about the fear and faith that's being displayed in this passage. To help illustrate that a little bit more, um, I want to mention uh, a passage, or not a passage, rather, an article um, that was put out in the 90s uh, in New York City called The Village Voice. Tim Keller cites this article in his book, The Reason for God. Um, and it was written by a lady who consulted with Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, Barbara Streisand, a number of different famous Hollywood stars. Um, and she talks about the experience of watching them really be ruled by their desire to seek fame. They basically mortgage their life, their opportunities, in some cases their families, to get what they always wanted, and that was fame, success, and a big gold star in Los Angeles. And then she talks about what happens when they finally got there. And I found her explanation of that to be pretty riveting. You want to go to the next slide, James? She says that finally, when Sylvester Stallone and Bruce Willis and Barbara Streisand, when all their fantasies had been realized, the reality was still the same. If they were miserable before, they were twice as miserable now. Because that giant thing that they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and (laughs) happiness, had happened. Nothing changed. They were still them. And the disillusionment that they experienced turned them howling and insufferable. That's what it looks like, family, to be ruled by the ways of this world and to be ruled by things that this world wants us to be ruled by. These desires, these fleshly desires to experience fulfillment in our identity as being a famous person or a successful person or a popular person or an accomplished person. There's a strong limitation and ultimately an unfulfillment that occurs when we allow ourselves to be ruled by those things. In contrast, though, Look at what happens when you're ruled by the ways of Jesus. I want to point out a gentleman named Brian Stevenson, uh, who is uh, an attorney right now in Atlanta. He's a pretty remarkable guy. He graduated from Eastern University. Uh, He was an All-American soccer athlete, a terrific student, went to Harvard Law, graduated number one Harvard Law. Uh, African-American guy, could have done whatever he wanted to do coming out of Harvard Law School with that kind of pedigree. And instead, he chose to work as a public defender for inmates on death row. Not exactly the most prestigious opportunity, not exactly the best compensated opportunity, but he chose to do that out of a conviction that justice in this country is not the same for people of color as it is for people with stuff, especially when it comes to death row. And all the stats and research that you want to see, I can toss it at you for that because it's just not fair and it's not equitable. And Brian, as a Christian, saw it as his opportunity, his obligation to take all of these gifts that God had given him because he saw himself as ruled by Jesus and invest that into a broken system and make an impact for that death row inmate who didn't deserve to be there and that death row inmate who didn't deserve to be there. 
And he's still doing that to this day out of an award-winning nonprofit organization that's really starting to affect change in our legal system. Brian's a great example of what it looks like to be ruled by the ways of Jesus, as is another gentleman named David Brainerd. Brainerd is a well-known missionary from the 1800s, uh, but he had a pretty tough life. When he was 14, he was orphaned by both of his parents uh, after they had passed unexpectedly. He then enrolled in Yale to become a pastor, which at that time you had to be in one of the major schools to even consider being in ministry. Uh, He had to leave temporarily because of a disease that was later identified as tuberculosis. It was never diagnosed properly, never treated properly. Um, And he returned to Yale after experiencing some health, only to be wrongfully kicked out and to lose his opportunity to become a pastor. But Brainerd didn't give up because he understood that regardless of what happened at Yale, he was ruled by Jesus. And so what he decided to do, what he was commissioned to do by others, was to serve as a missionary to Native American populations, populations that had largely been abused and mistreated by Americans as they were expanding colonially. And Brainerd devoted the last eight years of his life to translating the Psalms and the Gospels into the languages of these different tribes. And as his health continued to deteriorate, because again, his TB had never been diagnosed, he chose to remain there, even when his family wanted him to come home, even when his friends urged him to come back. Because again, he wasn't ruled by all of those things. He was ruled by Jesus. And there's a quote in his diaries, the diaries I highly recommend. They're so encouraging. They're so refreshing to hear a man of God write so boldly about his faith. But he says towards the end of his diaries uh, a pretty powerful statement. He says, I could have no freedom in the thought of any other circumstances or business in life. All my desire was the conversion of others. And all my hope was in God. God does not suffer me to please or comfort myself with hopes of seeing friends, returning to my family and enjoying worldly comforts. No, I take my rest in his good pleasure. This guy was ruled by Jesus. He wasn't in halfway. He was sold out for following the Lord. And so I want those three examples of the Hollywood stars of Brian Stevenson and uh, even David Brainerd to guide us as we're talking about faith and fear now going forward. Because this is the way that fear and faith tend to rule us. And if fear rules us, we will have this kind of effect on our lives. It's so demanding. Faith is the same way. If we embrace faith, if God gives us the gift of faith, it will demand every ounce of you. So I want us to take that thought in even now as we begin to talk about fear. So fear is one of the main emotions that we're seeing in this passage with Paul and those on the ship. We see it in verse 30 with the sailors who are ready to hop in a lifeboat and get out and abandon everybody on the ship. We see it with the soldiers, too, who are ready to kill all of the prisoners because they don't want to lose their own life. And so what I want to do is I want to talk briefly, but in as much depth as we can, about this idea of fear from Scripture. I want to get a really biblical sense of it, and I know this is going to be tricky because Sometimes when we talk about fear, we can, we can teach as Christians this idea that Christians should never be afraid or that Christians should never experience uh, any kind of fear at all. That Christians are, uh, as people at my alma mater used to say, too blessed to be stressed or depressed. Okay? I don't, I'm not teaching that. Okay? Christians are not too blessed to be stressed or depressed. That's nonsense. Okay? Fear, some fear is healthy. What's not healthy, what I would go so far to say is the Bible would say is wrong and sinful, is allowing fear to to take such a a stronghold in your life to embrace it as just natural 
and to forget the promises of God, that's what I want to caution us against today. That's that kind of ruling fear that occurs in this passage and that can happen in many of our lives, myself included. So this is a tricky subject, but I think it's, it's important to talk about. And Tim Keller does a really good job of showing the difference between a healthy fear, I think, and an unhealthy fear. He says that healthy fear is kind of like a thunderstorm, but unhealthy fear is more like a long, cold drizzle, where one can produce growth and the other produce mildew. Right? And that some fear can be good for us. The fight-or-flight reaction, that's healthy. That keeps us alive. But anxiety, that deeply-seated fear, where we're left agitated, nervous, upset, doubting in a chronic way, that can cause a debilitating kind of fear, he says. It's not because it's a threat to our safety or to our life, but because it threatens our identity. You catch that? That's the key. The key difference between healthy fear and dangerous, wrong fear is the the latter one goes to our identity and who we are. Look at these examples from Scripture where that actually happens. In Exodus, we see Moses, who's dreading the thought of humiliating himself by going before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world probably at that time, and stuttering, right? Being nervous to speak before this guy. He's not so concerned about his safety. He's concerned primarily about being humiliated. Uh, In Psalm 3, David, the author of the psalm, is terrified. He's hiding from his son who's rebelled against him. He's not just terrified, though, because he's in danger, though he does say that. He's also terrified because his reputation as the chosen king of Israel and as a father to his son who's now rebelling against him has been soiled and tarnished. And that that is creating a lot of the fear that is is deeply building itself into his soul. Even in Luke 22, we see this. Peter, the bold, brave disciple of Jesus, the one who said that he would go to Jesus to the end and he would die with him, within hours of making that statement, is disowning his hometown and his whole group of people that are Galileans. He's disowning the disciples, having never associated with them. And he even disowns Jesus, the one he said he would die for, because he's worried about what people might think about him. He doesn't even know that there's physical danger in that or not. He just knows that people won't like him in that scene. And he gives up everything. That's the kind of dangerous fear that we have to watch out for. That's the, kind of the two, two elements to it, right? There's healthy fear, but what we want to focus on is that, that really unhealthy fear. You can go ahead to the next slide, James. And so this is where it gets tricky, but I think this is really important. And if you want to go to a place in Scripture where fear and anxiety are really broken down, go to the Sermon on the Mount, especially in chapter 6, where Jesus makes it extremely clear, and he uses a number of illustrations afterwards to explain it. Jesus says that, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, about what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Family, this is the same language that Jesus used all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's a command. This is our Savior, our God, telling us, do not be anxious. Just like he says all the other things about adultery and hating other people and giving properly and all these other things that are in the sermon. And I think this is where it gets hard, right? I think this is where we can start to realize, like, man, I experience a lot of anxiety. I experience a lot of fear. Does that mean I'm constantly sinning? And and I want to encourage you. The problem is not so much the fear itself, but what you do with it. Do you choose to embrace that fear? Do you choose to hold it close and use that as a source of of self-pity? Or do you choose to give it off and to trust the promises of God? Jerry Bridges, in his book, Respectable Sins, goes right after this issue 
Um, it's, it's a tough book because the whole premise of the book is that there are these sins that we do as people that don't get the same kind of limelight attention that a lot of other sins do. And so we don't even think about them as sins. And here's how Bridges describes anxiety, this deeply rooted fear. Bridges says that anxiety is a sin, not to be taken lightly or brushed off as common reactions we have to difficult events in a fallen world. We should never accept them as just part of our temperament any more than we would accept any other sin as a part of our habits of character. And to go along with Bridges, we have another gentleman, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote one of the most helpful, accessible, and thoughtful commentaries on the Sermon of the Mount, talking about this idea of fear and anxiety as well, really centering it around the idea of having little faith. And here's what Jones says. He says, To be of little faith and to be anxious about life means, first of all, that we are mastered by our circumstances instead of mastering them. To be a people governed by life, right, being ruled, sitting helplessly under a great cloud of concern about food and drink and clothing. Things happen to us, and we are immediately bowled over. That should not happen to the Christian, who can instead, as Paul has shown us, rejoice in tribulation. Again, I want us to really understand why this is so serious, right? Because if we are chronically in fear, we are doing two things, two affronts, really, um, to God. First, we're affronting his character. We are saying, God, I know that you promised this. I know you promised that your plan is best, but I don't really trust you. I mean, imagine if I said that to Laura, right? Laura has been my wife for almost four years now. And I just walk in and I say, Laura, I know that you have this testimony of loving me, but I just, I just don't trust you. I can't trust you. That's wrong. That's not a gray area. That is wrong for me to say that to Laura. Laura has done nothing to lead me to think anything except that she trusts me and she loves me. And we do the same thing to God when we embrace that kind of fear. It's also, though, an affront to God's sovereignty, We are saying when we're fearful and we want to change things that we think our plan for this situation is better than sovereign God's plan. The God who created the world, the God who instituted the people of God in the Hebrews, the God who brought Jesus into this world, the God who's working out his redemptive plan right now, the God who is so greater than us that we can't even comprehend him, we're telling him, sorry God, I think I I would run this situation a little bit differently. Slight problem there, right? We need to realize just how serious this is. And this is a hard word, but I think it's a true word. But there's good news too, right? We know this. We know that God is a gracious God. He's not hovering over us trying to see if we're going to be fearful in the last moment. No, God is here to work with and walk with alongside of us. Uh, We see this even in Mark 9, where a father who is dealing with a very serious condition with his son approaches Jesus and asks Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus says, I will, believe in me. And the man, in a moment of great humility and great power, says, I believe, but Lord, help me in my unbelief. And that is true for us too, family. When we encounter these moments of fear and temptation to embrace the fear, let us cry out like this man, Lord, help me in my unbelief. The doubts are overwhelming, but Lord, help me in my unbelief. Go to your family, to your friends, your members here at church, Encourage them to to remind you of that. If this is a struggle, encourage them to remind you to ask the Lord for the help to see this through. One last quick observation about fear, and that's that it can be extremely negative, and it can affect the way that we think and even view things. If you want to go to the next slide, James. 
Remember back in Acts 21 when, G- when uh, Paul was going back to Jerusalem? And all along the way, there were these different friends and family members and disciples and apostles saying, Paul, don't, don't go. Don't go. This is going to happen to you. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be put in jail. The Holy Spirit has told me this is going to happen. One man even takes Paul's belt from him, wraps his hands and legs and said, this is what's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. And the mistake that those people made was not the word they got from the Holy Spirit. That was true. Paul was apprehended and almost killed. The mistake that they made was taking a very pessimistic, negative perception of those events. What they didn't realize is just because all those hard things were going to happen doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do, right? Just because you're about to encounter suffering and hardship for doing God's business doesn't make doing God's business the wrong thing. And we can so easily fall into that. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson, uh, in his uh, interpretation of the Bible called The Message, reinterprets even how Paul says this in 21. If you want to go ahead and throw that up. Paul says... Why all this hysteria? Why do you insist on making a scene and making it even harder for me? You're looking at this backward. The issue in Jerusalem is not what they do to me, whether arrest or murder, but what the master Jesus does through my obedience. Can't you see that? That's what we even need to hear now too, family. As you guys encounter different hardships for living in this community or talking to others about Jesus or just doing the right thing, don't be discouraged from continuing to do that because it gets hard. No, the key is not the suffering that we're going to experience, family, but rather what Jesus is going to do through that suffering and the impact that that's going to make in the lives of others around us. So that's fear. That's the kind of fear that is ruling the hearts of people in this passage. But then there's also faith. Faith is on display in this passage as well. Faith is a contrast that we're going to see. You can go to the next slide. You can go to the next one too. So Paul's confidence we see both in verse 22 and his gratefulness in verse 35. We see these displays of his faith in God. In verse 25, he makes a remarkable statement. He says that I have faith in God that it will be exactly as foretold, that they will all reach safety. He has that faith. And so I want to talk about faith a little bit as well, just like we talked about fear and how faith, which we should embrace, which is a gift from God, can also rule us and lead us to walk in the ways of Jesus. First, I want to talk about the reason for faith and how faith is a part of reasoning. Sometimes when we talk about faith, uh, we can talk about it as almost an opponent's to reason, like faith is sort of this whimsical sensation that we feel. It's something that we kind of leap for, right? It's not really informed by intellect or logic or reason, but then reason, that's kind of the cornerstone. That's the bedrock. That's something that we can trust. And that's just not the way that the Bible talks about faith. Is there some leap at some point? Yes. But that's how it is with all things. No matter what you believe, whether you're an atheist, a Christian, of some other religious belief, you have to at some point make a jump. But true Christian faith is started with reason. Look at how Hebrews talks about it in Hebrews chapter 11, maybe the ultimate chapter on the concept of faith. In verse 1, we see that faith, being defined here, is being sure of what we hope for and certain of that which we do not see. Very intellectual terms, very logical terms, right? Coming to these conclusions that we're sure and we're certain. And later in verse 6, that without faith... This reasoning faith, it is impossible to please God because whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. To get to a conclusion like that, you have to do a lot of thinking. 
You have to do a lot of reasoning. You have to be willing to jump into some pretty heavy subjects. And so I would argue, before we really start talking about faith, we need to realize that faith is not just compatible with reason, unlike what a lot of people would tell us. Faith will stimulate the kind of thinking. It will even uh, require the kind of thinking that goes far deeper and far beyond anything that most of us do on a day-to-day basis. When we really get down to it, faith ultimately needs reason to reach those conclusions. Keller again talks about this when talking about the subject of doubts. He talks about doubts um, almost like antibodies in your human body, where if you don't have those things built up, you're going to get sick. So Keller says that a faith without some doubts is like a human body with no antibodies. People who go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. So again, don't divorce this concept of reason and faith, even when you're experiencing doubt. That thought process of thinking through, man, why am I having this doubt? Why am I experiencing this? That is a deeply intellectual process that requires thought and hard work. In addition to the reasons of faith, we also want to talk about the object of faith. And this is a really important understanding when we're talking about faith in general. You can go to the next slide. So look at this passage here in Hebrews 11. This is uh, the very end of what is called the Hall of Faith. Uh, All of these different things that the saints have accomplished, that the author's talking about, how the saints, through faith, conquered kingdoms and forced justice. Uh, they quenched the power of fire. They escaped the sword. They were made strong out of their weakness. And then also some were tortured, mocked, flogged, imprisoned, stoned, killed, left destitute, wandering around in deserts and mountains. Some pretty remarkable things happened here through faith. And we can be tempted to think that that's because these were remarkable people. These were A-list people, the varsity team, and they were able to achieve these things through their strong faith. That's not how faith works. Faith is not an emotional response by us to something that we believe. That's not where we get our strength in our faith. Our faith ultimately is strong according to the object of our faith, not how we feel about that object. You can go to the next slide, James. Uh, We see this in Luke 8 even, where Jesus, after calming the storm that we talked about before, asks the disciples, where is your faith? Not asking them if their faith is strong, but, but where is your faith? What is it in? Is it in this boat? Is it in your ability to sail? Or is it in me? Because that's the issue. If we want to talk about strong faith, you have to know the object of your faith. Not so much your emotional response to it. Go to the next slide, James. Helpful illustration. Interesting picture. Imagine that you're the person on this swing. A swing that is swinging out into uh, who knows where. A few of you guys are thinking, I would not be on that swing. (laughs) I am very confident I would not be on that swing. But for somebody like me, who might be brave enough to jump on that swing, or foolish enough, if you want to say it that way, um, what's more important here? The person who's on the swing and their feeling about the swing? Man, I'm so confident the swing is strong. I'm so confident that this thing was built well. I trust this swing. Is that more important? Or is the construction and the design and the build of that swing? Right? That's the key. We can have all the positive feelings we want, 
and have faith in whatever we want. Faith in our careers, faith in our spouses, faith in our homes to hold up in storms. That doesn't really matter. What matters is the object that we have faith in and its strength. And we know that if we have faith in Jesus, then our object could not possibly be any stronger. It doesn't matter how many doubts you have. It doesn't matter whether you're an A-list person or you think you're a varsity Christian. You have faith in God. You could not possibly have an object that is stronger to have faith in. Nothing can possibly overturn or overpower or beat or defeat that object of your faith. And that was Jesus' point in Luke 8. That there's no reason to be afraid of a storm. Jesus created storms. Jesus created water. He created the wood for the boat. Don't be afraid. Where is the object of your faith? And then lastly, as we kind of wrap this meditation up of faith, I want to talk about the gift of faith. Because there's another, I think, kind of challenging thing that we can fall into when it comes to faith. We think that we go get it, right? That, that we just go and have faith. And we think about Jesus and we reason and we just go get it. And yes, there is a reasoning involved. But even to get to the point where you can reason about Jesus and understand the Bible and understand truth, you need somebody to come into your life to get past your sin, to get past your biases, and ultimately to show you that truth. We see that in the chapter right after the famous Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where the author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all those people we just read about, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Faith is not a virtue that we just build up and we grab and we, we work out like a muscle. Faith is a gift from God. It's not something that we can just go out and reach and build. Jesus has to be the one to give it to us. And that's, that's refreshing, family. That is, that is encouraging because it doesn't matter how many spiritual push-ups you do. It doesn't matter how hard you work. God is the provider of faith. He's the author of your faith. He is the perfecter of your faith. To Eric's point earlier, it's not a question so much of how hard you work as a Christian. That's depressing because we're never going to get it. Faith is ultimately produced and given to us by a God who created the world and knows our most important needs. How could we not ask for a better setting? It reminds me of an old sermon, How Firm a Foundation, uh, not a sermon, rather a, a hymn, that I really appreciate. Uh, sometimes it's really refreshing to go back to some of the old hymns and see the truth that's built in there. And I want to just read the lyrics here to encourage you to, to remember that your faith, the object of your faith, is far greater than any other object that you could place faith in. The, the hymn says, When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of woe shall not overflow. For I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That so, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Who's the primary actor in that? Is it the, uh, the person in the hard circumstances? No. It's the, it's the speaker. It's God. God will never, never forsake. Regardless of all the things that we're experiencing, we can have trust that is not about us. It's not about how hard we work. It's ultimately about the grace of God. So there we have it. We have what it looks like to be ruled by fear. We have what it looks like to be ruled by faith. And look at the contrast that's present there. It's a remarkable contrast, right? When you think about what it means to be ruled by fear, 
You can go to the next slide too, James. Uh, that means you're usually arrested by the present. You're so stuck in your current situation. But if you're ruled by faith, you're freed to look not just at, by the past and what God has done, but what God will do. And you don't have to be confined. If you're ruled by fear, you end up paralyzed. But if you're ruled by faith, you're invigorated. If you're ruled by fear, your, your will is disintegrated. But if you're ruled by faith, you get lasting perseverance because you know who you have faith in. If you're ruled by fear, you'll end up ignoring injustice because it'll cause you problems and, and you're too afraid to deal with those things. But if you're ruled by faith, you'll confront injustice at your own expense because you can trust God for what you need. If you're ruled by fear, you'll be overcome by your circumstances. You'll get bowled over, as N.T. Wright said. But if you are ruled by faith, you can overcome any circumstances by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a remarkable contrast. And I, and I wonder if you're, you're seeing it. It's, it's pretty clear. But this is the key. Ultimately, and you can go to the next slide, James. To be ruled by fear is to lack faith. They are op- opposites. They are opponents. They are antitheses of one another. And every time that we embrace fear, we are discarding our faith. And every time we embrace faith, we are discarding that chronic, anxious fear. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he's talking about this, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, if you want to go to the next slide, makes this point, I think, really helpfully. He says, It is God himself who gives us life and the body in which we live it. And if he has done that, we can draw this deduction, that his purpose with respect to us will be fulfilled. God never leaves an unfinished work that he has begun, and whatever he starts, whatever he has purposed, he will most surely fulfill. So ask yourself, Who do you want to be ruled by? Do you want to be ruled by this fear? Or do you want to be ruled by faith? Think about those examples that we talked about earlier, right? We talked about Moses. We talked about David. We talked about Peter. Look at what happens to them afterwards, right? Even though in those moments that they were ruled by fear, they also end up ruled by faith. In Exodus 10, Moses, by the power of the Holy Spirit, ultimately does confront Pharaoh. And he conquers, and not conquers, but he ends up defeating by the power of God the most powerful empire and frees his people from centuries of slavery. David, in Psalm 3, uh, after he wrote that, after experiencing all of that fear, ends up reuniting his kingdom and writes in Psalm 23 that even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He has also been able to embrace faith in that situation. And then in Luke also, we saw Peter, who had previously uh, disowned Jesus and his people, now instead choosing in the book of Acts to affirm the testimony of Jesus before the entire Sanhedrin, a far more influential group of people than had confronted him in the book of Luke. And he does so by telling the gospel to them straightforwardly and standing before them saying, I love Jesus, I can do nothing but tell you the gospel. That is the kind of transformation that can happen when you allow God to rule you through faith rather than allow yourself to be ruled by fear. So what does this mean then? What is this passage teaching us by showing this contrast? What are we as the people of God to take back? I would propose that there's a challenge to us. Really, there are three challenges that we're going to face. And these are things, family, that are more practical that I want us to really wrestle with even as we continue after this sermon. And the first is to recognize the pervasive influence of that chronic anxious fear in our world today. Our culture is built around ruling through fear. There's dissatisfaction that's constantly pushed on us. 
We're worried about our reputations, about materialism, our fitness and health. We're worried about our accomplishments, comfort, legacy. We're worried about um, our achievements, our popularity. You can go to the next slide, James. These are things that use fear to affect your behavior, to affect your life. And if you don't think that it's easy to get ruled by those things, you just haven't thought about it enough. Companies spend billions of dollars to curb your behavior and basically create addiction in your life to succumb to these kinds of things. And if we don't recognize that, then we're going to fall quickly into those fears. We're going to want that comfort. We're going to want all that stuff. We're going to continue to be discontent. We're not going to be ruled by the satisfaction that comes through faith in Jesus. And we as Christians are just as susceptible to this. And we've seen this even in the last few weeks with the decision that came out from the Supreme Court regarding gay marriage. The responses that I saw over and over again on social media were so discouraging oftentimes, not because the result itself or we had some major disagreement, but because people were so afraid, afraid of what this might mean for us. And there's some room to be afraid, maybe, but the kind of fear that I saw in social media was not what Paul displayed in the middle of a shipwreck surrounded by water with Roman soldiers who were ready to kill him at a moment's notice. Paul was strong. Paul had a faith that overcame those circumstances. And we do too. If we allow ourselves to embrace that faith and not to embrace fears of court decisions or politics or consumerism, we need to recognize those things for what they are and battle them by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we don't recognize that, then we're going to be in trouble. So that's the first challenge, is to recognize the influence of fear. The second is to remember the faithfulness of God. You know, it's interesting, in Acts 23.11, that is where uh, Paul is actually told for the first time, you must go see Caesar. He's told that in a vision. And that vision encourages Paul all the way through the journey to the end of the book of Acts. He is able to know, man, I'm going to see Caesar. I don't know what's going to happen between now and then, but that's what's going to happen because God is faithful. And that allowed him to remember and to remind himself in storms like these that God's faithfulness was enough. And this is a huge challenge for us, family. It's a challenge that you see all the way through the Bible, and it's a challenge for us today. Because so many times when we see the fears that we just talked about, we forget the promises of God. And we have to continually remind ourselves that God's promises are true. Look at the Hebrews, right? When they get out of Exodus and they cross the Red Sea, God has performed these incredible miracles. He's parted a major body of water. He's rescued them from a major empire. And within a very short period of time, those same people are willing to give up their association with this God. And the whole tradition of the Hebrew people from that point on is, how do we remind ourselves as the people of God to not forget God's faithfulness? Right? And then on the reverse, look at Elijah in 1 Kings, who famously as a prophet called down fire from God and defeated the prophets of Baal. And then within days of that happening, under threat of his life from the king and queen, runs off and lacks the trust and faith that God had for him. We can do the same thing. So I want to challenge this family. Don't fall for that kind of mistake. Don't fall for what the Hebrews are doing. Look at Paul. Look at how he comes back to over and over again in this passage. God is going to take care of us. God is going to fulfill his word. We know the end story too. We know that ultimately Jesus is coming back. And that all of the mess and the sin and the chaos in this world is going to be put to rights. And that one day Jesus is going to wrap this all up. And we know that. We can have faith in that. Let's hold fast to that faith. Let's remember. Let's reason our way to that faith. Even think about what 
what uh, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? When he's talking about to not have faith and to not have, anxi- or to not have anxiety, but to have faith. He says, look at the lilies. Look at the birds. Think about it. If they're cared for, how will you not be cared for? Think about it. We need to do this as well, family. We need to remember the faithfulness of God. Go ahead and go to the next slide, James. We're going to get ready to take communion here soon. And one of the things that happens in communion, whether it's a macro or here, is we are doing something that Christians have been doing for thousands of years. We are reminding ourselves that despite what culture tells us, despite what people tell us, despite what society tells us, ultimately what we're doing is we are reminding ourselves our identity is not in those things. Our identity is in Christ. That we need to do. We need to remember that. Communion is all about remembering. Remembering the saving work of Jesus, his death on the cross, and our participation in his life. There's one more challenge, family, and this is a tough one, and that's to confront our fears. Psalm 3 and Ephesians 5 talk about faith as a shield. Right? We know this even from Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 6, rather, not Ephesians 5, where um, this, all this armor is talked about, the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation, and then there's the shield of faith. And the funny thing about shields is they don't really work when you're running from the battle. Okay? You, it's just not how shields work. Your back is exposed, your shield's in front of you, you're dead. That's not how shields work. Now, if you're facing battle and you're under fire and you take refuge under that shield and you're able to pause, think about it, take a look, and then charge back in, that is the purpose of shields and that is the purpose of our faith. It's not to hide us. It's not to keep us separate from the rest of society and our problems. It's to give us the strength and the protection to remember that God, the object of our faith, is greater than whatever it is that we're facing. And we can trust him in that. We can trust him. When we battle that fear, when we choose to step back into it, to trust the Lord and to deny that chronic anxiety, our faith is refined. Whether that's Paul going through all those trials at the beginning of the sermon, or whether that's us going through our daily routine. C.S. Lewis, who lost his wife earlier than he was ever expecting to, talks about this. He talks about the effect that that had on his life. He said that God has not been trying to experiment on me and my faith or love in order to find out their quality. God already knew it. It was I who didn't. And in this trial of losing his wife, he makes us occupy the dock, the witness box, and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was effectively a house of cards, and his only way of making me realize that was to knock it down. And sometimes God is going to use these hardships in our lives to point out things that we are just too stubborn to realize. And we don't have to be afraid of that because we're going to be better off for it. That's part of being shaped and molded like clay, as Paul says, into the image of Jesus. You don't get to stay the same. You get to be changed. You're different. And so we don't have to be afraid of those fears, family. We can, we can embrace them. Looking at Luke 13, if you want to go to that passage, James. Um... Look at how Jesus talks about faith. Faith is a mustard seed. Again, mustard seeds don't force themselves to grow. They're given growth, just like our faith. But more importantly than that, think about the illustration. Jesus could have talked about any kind of tree and just said, the kingdom of heaven is like a tree, but he chose a mustard seed. And mustard seeds have this dynamic to them where they just kind of take over when they grow. And our faith can be that way too, family. If we choose to embrace faith and allow God to do work in our life, 
the same thing can happen. God can use faith to just transform us, transform our families, transform our communities. Because the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is living in you and me if we are following Jesus. Trust that. Embrace that. Don't be afraid. Trust that that living work is coming in and through you. Family, at the end of the day, when we're battling fear, it's really tough and it's hard. And that chronic anxiety that I've mentioned is difficult. Uh, I know for me that this is something that I have fallen prey to on numerous occasions, whether I'm studying for exams, I've got a big project at work, uh, whether I'm nervous about a relationship, I can just quickly embrace that fear. And, and I can choose to just accept it, to self-pity, to justify my work and my, my time that I spend out of that fear. And I, my, I pray, family, that we would see in this passage that that's not necessary, that God and the faith that he gives us gives us what we need to overcome any trial. And I want to encourage you guys to think about how you can even, even now, begin to express that kind of faith. It doesn't have to be incredible. It doesn't have to be remarkable. You want to be brave? Go change a diaper at home. Go be content with what you have. Ask a hard question to a family member or a friend. Clean the dishes when you're not supposed to. Admit you're wrong when you're wrong. Hard for me. Pray your fears. Mow the vacant lawn next door. Share an unpopular truth. Pray ambitiously. Knock on a neighbor's door. Put sin to death in your life. Forego some comforts that you could have but you don't need. Boldly talk about Jesus. Embrace the hardships of life that we get. And refuse to, as we've seen so many times today, to be governed by the worries of this world and the ways of this world, like food and drink and clothing. Refuse to be governed by that. And instead, as we see even in Matthew 13, 44, give up everything, everything to follow Jesus. I guarantee you that you will not be disappointed. I can't guarantee you that it will be easy. Hopefully you won't end up in a shipwreck like Paul. But I guarantee you that you will never find a greater joy than in giving up everything to follow Jesus. Let me pray for us.